Exploring the Legacies of Empire in Museums. Hi, my name is Malini Alanki and I'm a master's student at Utrecht University, production assistant and intern at the Unsettling Knowledge podcast. And I'm pleased to join host Dr. Rachel Gillette for this episode. And today we actually start by going back to September 10th, 2020, to an incident that happened at the African Museum in the Netherlands. Congolese activist Mwazulu Diabanza was arrested for walking out of the museum with a statue of Congolese origin that was taken during the Dutch colonial era. The incident was live streamed on Facebook. It was a political action organized by the group UDC, Unité Dignité Courage, aimed at provoking Western museums to start a process of returning works of art, which were all acquired by looting, theft and violence during the colonial period. Mwazulu was fined for his action and accused of stealing the artefact. In return, Mwazulu stated this, I'm accused of having stolen a statue when I actually came to take back what belongs to us and what was taken from us by force. His words ring true. And this incident is part of the broader legacies of the colonial era. The fact that former colonial powers still possess artifacts that belong to countries they once colonized. In recent years, governments and museums have acknowledged the controversy surrounding this possession. However, many museums still hold a large number of these stolen artifacts. Right, so acknowledging that museums and former colonial governments are economically benefiting from the looting of colonized countries and also dispossession of their valued artifacts, it is important that we identify these legacies of empire that have shaped museums and continue to do so. In this episode, we speak to two wonderful guests who have been deeply involved with these issues. We explore these colonial legacies, the impact that they have, and how museums, as institutions, might move forward. And my name is Sabad Radas. Um, until last week, I was curator of the science collections at UCL. Um, I am now your garden variety historian and writer, and my area of specialism is the history of science, particularly the history of scientific racism and eugenics. I'm Professor Dan Hicks. I am curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum and Professor of Archaeology at the University of Oxford. Welcome, Sabadra and Dan. Thank you so much to the both of you for joining us. I wanted to firstly begin with Dan's recent book, The Brutish Museums, a play on British museums, because it did gather a lot of controversy, but it did offer really important reflections on the history behind how these artefacts ended up in museums. And I know you both do a lot of research into this. So what are these things that we aren't being told when these artifacts get put onto display? And are we being told the real history behind how they actually ended up in museums? Yeah, sure. It's a really good place to start for this conversation, I think. So, yeah, in some ways, we're having a sort of a reckoning, not only with museums, but more generally with how we think about knowledge and the knowledge associated to museums, um, and also with empire more generally. So, I mean, my sense is that across sort of Europe at this moment, we're thinking about institutional racism, we're thinking about, well, I guess, having to recognise that it isn't sort of going away, 
The fact that the government issued a report that just said it doesn't exist hasn't worked to get rid of it. So there's this unfolding of an awareness that institutional racism has a history. And here in the UK, elsewhere in Europe, that history is in part a history of empire. So those museum collections that also have a relationship with the history of empire, you know, are sort of you're coming into the spotlight again. We're seeing them in a different way. And in the book, I talk about the idea that the colonial museum has failed. And when, when something fails, you see it. So you're on your way to work and the car won't start. And in that moment, you see the car in a way that you wouldn't on any normal sort of morning. So that's where we've got to with institutions sort of like the Pitt Rivers or the, you know, the V&A or the, uh, the British Museum. They're not undertaking the work they were built to do, which was a certain sort of a white supremacist colonial worldview. That, that, that was a part of their sort of history, a part of what they, they, they were built for. So we're just at the point where we've opened the bonnet and we're looking at the engine, we're trying to work out, you know, what do we need to take out and what needs fixing or does the whole thing need to be scrapped? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there might be this colonial history that isn't being given as much attention as it should. Sabaja, what are your thoughts on this colonial violence that might be taken out of the narrative when these artifacts get put onto display? I think that's the that's that's where the violence comes from is that act of display. Mm-hmm. And again, in the absence of any kind of critical thought or even any kind of indication as to how objects, specimens, people come to be in our museums. And I think that's why Dan's work is so important is because he's able to demonstrate that um, these erased histories are still there within the archives. We can still go and find them. There is still testimony to this history. And it also then starts to help us unpick that process of what museums were set up to do. I think I I might disagree a little bit, which is that I think museums probably up until now are still kind of carrying on that job in, in ways that are still very effective. And part of the contention and part of the controversy about Dan's book coming out is that there are considerably more vocal forces these days who have invested a lot in keeping museums exactly the way they are and see them as these fonts of authoritative knowledge. This is where the truth is coming from. And that is why they find it so threatening that researchers like Dan and me, when we start to tell the truth, because that's what's in the archive, you know, we're not making anything up here, right? It's like, this is, um, we're, we're just doing the exact same job that we're used to. We're just telling slightly different stories than I think people are expected to hear. And that is, I think that's the thing that's important. Um, so from from my own experience, it's not just um, archaeology museums. I think people are fairly familiar with the discourse in archaeology museums. We know about stuff being looted, and Dan has made an extraordinarily strong case as far as the Benin bronzes are concerned about how that is that is loot. Um, but also in the language and in the stories we tell. So for me, the work that science museums do is also carrying out that same process because of the way it structures knowledge, thinks about you know how we shape and think about the material world and also about who gets to say what knowledge is in the material world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I, I've literally just been teaching about the scientific history of racism or the association between science and racism. But I think as well as this desire to see museums as this authoritative truth uh, or source of truth, there's also a nostalgia And I think that is a very hard set of links to break when the museum that you went to as a child is suddenly seen as this source of 
disruption or unrest. And I guess I was thinking of this. I went to the Pitt Rivers Museum as a child with my parents, and I saw the uh, Indigenous American heads on display there, which were then called the shrunken heads. And I was fascinated. It's childhood memory. And then, of course, my whole life has been a different understanding now of that experience in the museum. I have taken students to the British Museum, to the Tower of London. One of my students who was uh, originally from India joked that she was going to take the Koh-i-Noor back because it belonged to her people. And if the, the security guards tried to stop her, well, she would just say it was it belonged to her. We've all said that at some point in time. It's like, just like it's, it's an undergraduate ritual. I've said that myself previously. <laughs> I didn't realize it was such a widely shared kind of reaction. But uh, And so they get this idea that, like, why are these things in these museums and these objects are looted? My students do anyway. But Sufadra, I was really intrigued when I saw a little bit of your work on how ideas of racial superiority then get placed on the Elgin marbles in particular. I wouldn't necessarily have thought that, and I'm not sure my students would either. Could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I had no idea either. And I'm the product of two archaeology degrees. I have an MA in, in archaeology. And when we did public archaeology as an undergraduate, the Parthenon marbles were, you know, it was it was one of the topics we talked about. And I had no idea because we always talk about it in terms of ownership. You know, when did Lord Elgin, is it legal? Who did they actually belong to? What is the legal question? And at no point in time did it even occur to anyone, uh, least of all me, to ask the question, well, why are these things so important? And when you ask that question and you start to look into ideas to do with how the British created a racial identity for themselves at the height of empire that was linked very closely to ancient Greece, so that these sculptures from the Parthenon speak to an aspirational body and also an aspirational body politic, suddenly it becomes really important that these objects should not be in Greece anymore because we need to remember that racially speaking, the Greeks in Greece have degenerated. This was this is not my point of view. This was the view of the people at the time. And if the British are the natural inheritors of the ancient Greeks, then this is where they belong. And it's important for them to be here. So again, it's this idea of there are so many stories that are there, but not talked about. And yeah, it's my general principle that the thing in this country that is keeping us racist, be it institutionally or systemic or whatever kind of racist we think we are, we're all of them, by the way, um, our inability to talk about race and our inability to talk about history is the thing that is keeping us racist. Yeah, that's right. I also think, you know, as a museum curator, you know, a part of the issue is the sheer whiteness of the sector as well, right? I mean, you've never seen a whiter organisation than something like the Pitt Rivers or the British Museum. For me, the more I've worked in this area over the past five years or so, the more I've become convinced that we we need to do more than the you know than the third wave thing of talking about positionality it's also important to undermine the position that you find yourself in and to remove the podium and to actually look at not only you know we can't wait until we diversify our sector but we have to urgently diversify our sector but we also need to take apart that white infrastructure and part of that is how to draw the line between sharing knowledge and taking up the space. So, you know, I think all of us who work in the museum's world need to address these issues of institutional, ongoing, everyday racism, the systemic nature of it. But, but also we need to take action as well as just acknowledge it. And I love actually that in your book, one of the ways you make this very concrete 
is you say the plaques that go on walls in museums tell certain stories that really make racial claims or make some people look better than others. And I love that you actually just challenge that. And that is the action you take. You say the British were the uncivilized in this interaction. The British walked in, did violence and took stuff. Um, And I'm going to quote, actually, you say, violent military operations involving the theft and public display of art classified as primitive or degenerate were a key part of the ideology of white supremacy. So, yeah, I mean, I think both of you in your work are saying actually the museum and the way it displays and the way it collects and the stories it tells and the stories it doesn't tell are creating white supremacy. Entirely. Yeah, I mean, I would go to Fanon uh, with his accounts of racism and, and culture. In that essay from 1956, he talks about vulgar racism, right? Which is the sort of the obvious stuff of the skulls in the museum and the sort of corporeal side of it, he argues. And then he says, fairly quickly, racism evolved and and improvised and started to co-opt the culture. So he talks about the, you know, the looting of civilizations and, and the dispossession of culture as this other sort of racism. So that cultural racism is is a part of what, you know, we're trying to grapple with. So here at the Pitt Rivers Museum, next door in the Natural History Museum, you know, after we beat the fascists in 1945, one of the first things that happened was the removal of the racist displays of skulls, that told the racist lie that there were different species of, of sort of people. That was easy in some ways for science to say this is bad science in a, an era where at last you could let sort of go of the fascism or the proto-fascism that was that was sort of driving that. But right next door in the Pitt Rivers, the displays such as the Benin uh, bronzes that were built in order to tell precisely the same narrative of supremacy but with culture and not with the remains of people. You know, we, we need to understand the cultural racism and absolutely cultural whiteness was a massive part of that and, and is in the present. So then we have these artefacts that are removed from their natural habitat then. They're removed from their country of origin and then they're put into these foreign environments of museums. And when we think about this, there there is sort of a removal of the cultural significance and historical connection that these artifacts then have with their original communities. I wanted to read a quote to you from Mwazulu Diabanza. He states that many of my ancestors died protecting these items. They were beheaded. They refused to accept that these objects be taken and they were killed. Their pain is inside me. So these artifacts obviously have a lot of meaning and significance. But then is there this idea of the concept of the death of an object as these artifacts are then taken away and then viewed and interpreted through this alternative white colonial gaze, which is coming not from a place of understanding or appreciation? I'm going to let Dan answer that because he's, he's more the expert in this than I am. But the thing that really stuck with me um, at Dan's book launch was the artist Victor Eichelmenor, who has spoken about this um, at length and extraordinarily eloquently. And the main point that he made was that art for art's sake is an entirely Western concept. And I've never really thought about it along those lines, but just simply this idea that these are suddenly just things 
this is one bit of the discourse that kind of did filter into my archaeology degree and my museum studies degree is this idea that museums are somehow sterile environments, that the objects are divorced from their context and therefore divorced of their meaning and to a degree their power. But we never really talked about what that power was. And that power is real to the people to whom those objects belong or to whom those people are related, depending on how you want to describe them. In the book, I mean, one of the things I found, and I think in general we're all finding right now, is that so many of the conceptual framings and the idioms and the vocabulary that we normally would use are just failing us right now. So much of the theory. But for me, it was the notion of the life history of the object, which is so familiar. If you think of any one of the of the idioms that we use as art historians, anthropologists, archaeologists, that notion of the social life of things, that notion that the cultural you know, biography of objects that something moves from one location to another and it sort of gains another layer of meaning. It's this really positive story of something else being added on a, you know, semiotic sort of level. For the Benin bronzes and objects like them, this is precisely the opposite. These are histories of death, histories of loss. And that's how I'm trying to in the book to reframe the crucial work we have to do for the provenance histories of objects, which is where the work of restitution, it's where the reckoning with the past starts. It, it's actually the really boring work of the curator sort of digging into the histories of objects. But that, you know, we, we need to do that as more than just a whole new context being added. This is about the destruction of context. Yeah, and these artefacts and objects are also created with a purpose a purpose for a specific community and a specific environment. And so it is very much the story of loss that you speak of when it then loses its purpose or it's no longer being fulfilled. So then given the importance of these artifacts, museum curators have a really important role to ensure that they are being interpreted correctly and that the right voices are being amplified and you're not reshaping or hiding any parts of history. So acting as curators, how do you both approach this role to ensure that this takes place? Oh, I've quit. So um, <laughs> it's... <laughs> um, but that's a challenge, right? How do you challenge this, Sufadra? Really, no, I really want to hear both in the job and beyond it. Uh, well, actually, and that's that's a really good way to phrase it, because even though I've given up the I've given up the salary, I think is probably the thing I've given up mostly, but you, you can't take away my knowledge and my authority and my experience as far as that's concerned. My way of doing it was... There is a lot of authority and there is a lot of social cachet, particularly in the academy as well, invested in the post of curator. People might not be able to define what a museum curator is, but they know that it's something important. And the I'm not going to go off into avenues of thinking about the violence of care in museums. It's something that's on my mind at the moment. But that authority is understood. And so therefore, as a museum curator in a university, I felt it was my job to use that authority to best purpose. And that was at UCL was to bring to the fore the story of the history of eugenics that really hadn't been there or it wasn't really something as a university community we were talking about. I felt in ways that we should because it has an effect on on people's lives today. And it has, it has since come out. Um, UCL issued a formal apology, not only for its history of eugenics, but for its, its present and the way in which non-white students have been treated, um, which is uh, which is inexcusable. But it is something that once you acknowledge, it's something that hopefully we can all work together to, to make the, the world better. And I know that I sound really polyadorish whenever I say that, but I can never think of another way to phrase it. And so what I want to do outside of the academy is to continue to tell those stories. 
this is what the remit of a curator is, is to bring across stories from the museum collection and make them interesting and make them engaging. And so to me, telling the story of the history of eugenics was just kind of the same story as telling any other exhibition that I've curated, whether it was about eyes or whether it was about museums and what they should get rid of. You've got a job to do. Try and do the job the best as you possibly can. And ideally, if you can be anti-racist while you're doing it, that's a bonus. Yeah, and then I guess, I mean, from from inside the museum, there are so many risks here, though, to tell the story kind of better, to tell it as honestly as possible. So there are some... So say, for example, the director of the V&A to, to sort of pick someone at random. Just at random. Can't just imagine random. what made you think of that, yeah. Who would argue that the dismantling of the white infrastructure of these institutions is wrong because we have to be really, really honest about that history. We need to actually revise the displays so they're all about... Victorian acts of violence and taking and so on. Um, and that, of course, is going to reinscribe that violence. And that was the big thing I learned. Or, well, I guess I was taught by the, uh, the Rosemary's Fall Oxford you know, movement. I'd never seen, I mean, we, we you know, here at the Pitt Rivers as sort of creators, we, if you go back to 2013 to 14, you know, we were feeling fairly good about ourselves. We'd, um, you know, undertaken restitutions to First Nations and Native American communities. We'd worked with the Maori and Aboriginal Australians to talk about their histories and you know, restitute some ancestral remains. We'd, you know, it was all the kind of sort of things that you think is how you rehumanize this old colonial institution and try and make it kind of better. And then suddenly... These voices from Zimbabwean and South African and their colleagues who were fresh from the struggle to remove the racist image of Cecil Rhodes from the heart of campus at UCT in Cape Town because institu- institutional racism was persisting and there's this massive great image of, of a white supremacist and a mass murderer and a diamond miner at the heart of their campus that normalised and made that violence and that worldview kind of naturalised, but made it last as well. And suddenly it was pointed out that, well, the Pitt River is, is operating in exactly the same way. And I I honestly haven't seen it that way. So for me, that's the great risk. You know, this isn't just a generalised reckoning with imperial pasts in some reflexive way, in some self-aware way, because, you know, that's not working. We need to take this thing apart. We need to find ways to actively undo this without just sort of reproducing. And that's the challenge. And there are various ways we can try and do that. But it isn't enough simply to rewrite the label. Yeah, that actually resonates so much with my experience when I was teaching at Harvard in the wake of Michael Brown's death. And we had a similar experience. We thought we were doing pretty good, actually. And then the students came to us and said, there is so much more. We walk through halls every day that literally, you know, in the halls of residence at Harvard, the people who are on the stage, the heads of halls were called housemasters. And this is just one small example. So there were lots of pictures on the walls of former slave owners and things like that. And I remember the students saying, You can put us on your brochure and say that you're inclusive, but that isn't going to cut it. We will not be the poster child for your diversity attempts. So 
this kind of challenge then extended beyond the social media campaigns and turned into a concrete set of demands, whether at Harvard or through the roads must fall hashtag campaign. Do you think social media then really helps? And what has been the personal cost for you? Or does it just polarize people? I'd love to hear how you both navigate these issues. I am I am not nearly famous enough for this to be a concern for me. Um, social media is wonderful and wielded powerfully in the correct direction. I think it has a, a lot to do in terms of being able to get a message out. But the thing about those hashtags is that they were never just hashtags to start with. They were always political platforms. There was always an idea beyond simply just trying to get attention and create controversy. It's not just about a statue coming down or a statue like, for example, the Edward Colson statue being finally torn down and rolled into the harbour, which is easily one of the, the like, probably the only good moment of the year 2020, looking back on it, as far as I can see. And those flashpoint moments are important for us as a culture and a community and how we how we kind of tell the story of ourselves. But the people behind those movements, they're not just about the hashtags. They have policy, they have manifesto, they have things that they want to achieve, which are these longer term structural changes that you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. And I think, I mean, absolutely, you know, I'm of a uh, generation that uh, that failed in the removal of Edward Colston. I mean, I attended the first event. You did everything, right? It's like you, all the legal stuff was tried. Yeah, that's right. So, so the fact that Colston fell in 2020, I think absolutely social media was a part of that, you know, because the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, as it emerged in the summer of 2014, you know, with the racist murders of Eric Garner and Michael Brown, up to the Trump inauguration and onwards, actually, that movement used a certain sort of visuality. And here, I think, well, a part of this was what uh, Nick Mizoff argues is a shift in the basic uh, technologies of visuality. So the fact that there's the presence of uh, cell phone footage and dashcam footage that means that anti-black violence can be seen and shared in a way that it wasn't. But this is anti-black violence that has been happening for centuries. But even right up to the present, I mean, speaking now just a fortnight or so ago after the verdict on the racist killing of uh, George Floyd, you know, the Minnesota Attorney General after that event, I think for, for those of us who worked in in the museum sector, actually made a really important point. He said that it it wasn't uh, justice in terms of that verdict because it wasn't really restoration. It was accountability. And I think that distinction in between accountability, which is what maybe in the museums we can start to offer by sharing knowledge of what's in the collections, you know, you know what's our equivalent of saying his name, of sort of making something uh, visible on a camera? Well, it may be. It's about sharing things on social media. It's about getting the facts out there about actually, you know, where are all the Ben and Bronzes? But that's only the start. It isn't going to be be justice. It's about sharing the resources so that a wider community conversation and a wider international conversation can happen. So I think social media gives us, I don't know, maybe I'm optimistic. It gives us a certainly a more democratic world in which you can hear voices other than the control of the, uh, the press offices of certain museums. But it also there's an internationalism there as well. It's so, so important. I, th- I think one thing I want to add into that is, yeah, it, it, that is spot on, Dan, actually, because I think the question that we all started to ask 
last year, um, which is which is way later than we should have all been asking it, which was how many black people do we need to see murdered in the streets before we're going to do something about this? Um, I mean, if, in terms of it being recorded, I mean, Rodney King was recorded in the early 90s. You know, I, I remember that was a cultural moment um, as, as, as much as George Floyd. So, yes, it's the fact that, yeah, we've been watching it. We've been watching it unfold and we've been watching it exist all of this time. But really, what are we going to do about it? Well, that's right. And I just add to that, that actually, for those of us in the heritage sector who are as old as I am, I can remember in the 90s, in the late 90s, the conversation really came to a head around the McPherson report. So the racist killing of Stephen Lawrence in 1993. And the McPherson report that came out in 1999 introduced that language of institutional racism for the first time. It said Stephen Lawrence's death and the handling of that case, the lack of conviction, of his murderers was in part because of institutional racism. So no individual being racist, but the fact that the Metropolitan Police as an institution, this was happening in. There was such a moment then where we started to make some progress, circa 2000, 2002, and something happened. We lost that that window of opportunity back then. So, yeah, we don't want to mess it up this time. This is another opportunity where we can have another go it's another generation where we can try to address these questions. Yeah, definitely. I know you mentioned this a little briefly, but we had a question as well. When museums issue statements of support in the Black Lives Matter movement and how it may be ironic almost when these same museums have looted artifacts from African countries. Did you have any more thoughts about that? Sure, absolutely. Well, I'd love to just circle back and ask something because earlier Sabadra mentioned something about the politics of care and I think that's yes relevant here, right so and so it's a question a question for you Sabadra really so one way of reading why all of the Black Lives Matter statements from museums were so wrong and so hurtful maybe was that they weren't listening to the demands being made but also they were extending something that they do all the time, which is say they're caring for objects and they extended that and say, hey, we can care for people too. And somehow that can be an act of violence. It can be hurtful. But I'd love to know more about how you're thinking about that. It was it was pretty much it was a considerably more basic than that, the way that I'm thinking about it, which is that museums, um, they legitimize their existence and their actions as an act of care. And there is inherent, you know, Eurocentrism and white supremacy involved in that, which is the British Museum is the only place that is capable of taking care of the Parthenon sculptures and uh, or that this is the only place in which this is appropriate. So, again, it's that conflating of space, place, authority and race are all inherent in the museum. So, yeah, I, I was less theory heavy. I was more just kind of like this is the handbook. Right. This is these are the things that we say. And it's exactly the same thing as, you know, those statements and all those museums coming out and saying that as well. Go look at your staff. Um, why is it the case that um, in, in museums, uh, if you see someone who is non-white, they're more likely to be a cleaner or a security guard than they are to be a curator? Maybe work on that first before issuing statements left, right and centre. The statements are all well and good, but they mean nothing in the absence of any kind of real change. Yeah, and this point that you mentioned as well, whereby museums legitimise their actions as an act of care, is also used when there is discussion in returning these items to their original countries. 
because I've seen this argument that has been used at times or it's come into the debate that other countries, the original countries, are, quote, unable of caring for their own cultural heritage. So that's why these artifacts should stay in these Western countries then. But I mean, isn't this also furthering these colonial ideas of superiority in deciding who has more authority or right to take care of these artifacts? Again, I think we need to come back to vocabulary. So when we think about restitution or repatriation, repatriation is simple. It goes back to the place that it came from. But restitution is more than that. It's more than simply the handing back of something. And uh, it, it needs more than the saying of sorry. That's an important start. So we need the acknowledgement of the violence. And again, I will point you to, Tans- to Dan's book because, again, that is where the public acknowledgement is starting to come from. Um, and then what we also need is an understanding that once, you, once we've given the things back, that it's not simply transactional. It's not simply this is now back where it is and we're all fixed. It's a because in, uh, one of the things that we haven't particularly touched on, although we've been talking about it all the time, is capitalism. And it's this is again, this is the ways in which the structures are kept in place. What are the ways in which we can build relationships with places that with places and with people in those places that were so violently, you know, those objects are so violently ripped from those places, but also over a, a couple of a good solid couple of centuries of European and white supremacy as as kind of, I mean, white supremacy is still with us. We can't pretend like that stopped. But um, what can we do to to make, to to repair? I think maybe it might be the R word that I'm looking for to add in to, re- to repatriation and restitution. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've been reading uh, a really interesting book on this recently called The Past Can't Heal Us by uh, uh, Lee David. I mean, when she says things about how ideas that we have to face the past, that it's a, a duty to remember, the framing of you know, moral remembrance, as she calls it. She underlines how that can be, be you know, counterproductive, it can reinscribe hurt, it can reinstate you know, difference. Even though in the moment of the, of the repair, everyone around the table can feel okay about it, there can be longer term sort of risks. So I do think that's why we need the dismantling side of this, the allow, allowing it to transform to be sort of front and centre. Um, and I mean, in my more hopeful moments, because we're talking about the decolonization of everything, right? We're not just talking about museums. Let's hope, you know, certainly for me, that museums are, are the tip of a much wider corporate colonial sort of racist iceberg. So the potential is that if we start to dismantle our institutions in this way and show how it can be more than just another monument, it can be about the present, it can it can really make things better, then maybe we can do the same for knowledge, for our disciplines, for our, you know, for our universities. Who knows, the museum's world might even be able to say something to the fields where empire is actually continuing in ways that are harder to see, like the criminal justice system or the healthcare system and so on. So I think we can be really ambitious in this conversation, ensuring that that anti that it isn't just decolonization, it's you know, it's anti-colonialism, it's anti-racism, it's anti-capitalism. Given that the car has stopped, 
it's broken down to borrow Dan's metaphor, which I love, by the way, it, it, because there is something wrong. It is not working. It has stopped working for us in the way that we need it to. And why was it working for us in the first place? For whom was it working? But just to say, I think there's a question still on the table. And Dan, I think you raise it in your book. And Suvadra, I'd love to hear from you as well. Can we decolonize museums? Hmm, pass. <laughs> okay, well, I'm not going first on that one. Oh, no. Okay, well, <laughs> let me try. Let me try. Okay, so whenever anyone asks me that question, it really depends on the day of the week they are asking me that question as to how I'm feeling about it. And, um, yeah, the, the work really to quote is Sumaya Kasim, the museum will not be decolonized because the argument that she makes is that at its heart, the museum is a colonial organization. What are the ways in which museums serve us as a community and I'm going to go way back to the beginning because you know I was that kid too you know my parents took me to the Natural History Museum when I was four years old and I remember looking up into the face of a thing that turned out to be a fake plaster dinosaur um, and you saw how much fuss there was about that dinosaur how, how unwilling people were, were to let go of the thing that had been there for all this time and you know we're the same with our cars and we're the same with our museums they've been functioning in a particular way but we need to start thinking critically about how they really can function to serve us best. And what the history of museums has taught us is that museums were conceptualized and functioned as a colonial tool. This is how they work. They are the repositories of the loot and they are ways of structuring knowledge and colonial knowledge and power. Um, and then, of course, more recent, there was also this idea that they would be the places for the education of the working classes. The great unwashed were going to come to these places and learn how to behave in a civilized manner. Maybe, to my mind, the thing that if, the, if it can't be decolonized, perhaps it can be a space for decoloniality and the museum can be a space for community and for solidarity. But there's a load of things that need to be dismantled before we get there, I'd say. Um, thing to bear in mind is, you know, I have just given up a formal museum job. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt because, you know, I mean, I'm wading through my new liberation and enjoying it. Maybe they can still serve a function, but it's going to take a lot. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I'm speaking of someone that hasn't uh, given up their job, but... No judgment, Dan. But come on in, the water's fine. But, but in a review of my book, the Times newspaper did say it was a career death wish. Um, and a lot of people have thought, and I'm constantly, increasingly asked, oh my God, how's it? Are you okay? You know, after having, you know, said something... You've had, had considerably worse things thrown at you in the interim as well. Yeah, so, I have. Yeah. I have much worse. Um, and obviously it is unpleasant, but it is crucial that we underline that the evolution of ethical standards in our museums is a professional concern. This isn't some, so when when the director of, of, of the, uh, the V&A says I'm an activist, it's an attempt to completely marginalise what's a mainstream conversation in our disciplines and in our field. I do think there's so much to be hopeful for because there is a generational shift and we're not like separate from society. So much of the of the role of the curator used to be simply defined as sort of keeping things the same, um, making sure that, the, and that there was, as I say in the book, there's this sort of mission creep from the idea that you're making sure that nothing's rusting away in the cabinet and the moths aren't eating the fabrics into thinking that you have to hold on to this whole space and stop the world from changing around you. And the sheer whiteness of the people that work in these institutions made that actually happen for too long. So I'd encourage anyone that reads uh, German and let's hope that it's out in English quite soon to look at the new uh, Benedict Savoir book, 
on these questions because she shows in her book Africa's Kampf für seine Kunst, Africa's struggle for her art, she shows how in 1960, in the year of Africa, when 17 African nations got independence, the European governments and uh, directors of museums actually got together and started talking to each other about how to push back against restitution, against the the the, uh, the newly independent sort of countries wanting actually to have their own museums as part of their sovereignty, as part of their identity. And so many of the myths that, that Africans and other, others around the world can't sort of look after their own objects through to, through to some of the legal barriers were made up in a very short amount of time between 1960 and 1965. And the French and the Germans, the British and others were all part of that. So we're dealing so much of this now. We're dealing with ideas and sort of narratives that were created in the 1960s, you know, so which is quite a long time ago, but it's not that long ago. I mean, it's a, you know, it's only a generation ago. And we're out of that now. We can't, you know, time's up for that, that because of a shift in the generation, because our audiences are asking, well, not even sort of difficult questions, the real questions. These are not difficult histories. They're easy. They're straightforward. They're just hurtful and horrible. So that's a hopeful thought anyway, that maybe that that history is on our time, even if inertia is on the time of those that want to keep things the same. Uh, as a historian, all I can say is yes, and please, we are doing the same things and want to be doing more of them. So I have taken heart from this conversation. Suvadra, what does the future hold for you? What is your podcast name? What can we look for from you? And Dan, are you going to be recovering from your book for a long time or are you uh, generating new things? I should say, okay, well, the, the podcast you need to listen out for is my swan song from UCL. So it's the, thir- it's the third in the trilogy. Um, having looked at the history and the present of eugenics at UCL, I've got together with some colleagues and we're, we're commemorating work that's been done, but also trying to envisage what things could look like in the future. It's called What Does Eugenics Mean to Us? Um, and it's going to be launched in the middle of May. So you can head over to the UCL Sarah Parker Raymond website if you want to have a listen to that. Thank you for giving me the space to share that. Personally, um, my goal is just to continue doing what I am doing um, in the hopes of being able to reach a wider public audience. So again, thank you very much for giving me the space to be able to do that. Watch this space. We'll see what happens. Yeah. And then in terms of me, yeah, um, obviously lots of online meetings as we keep doing, moving the restoration conversation forward. We've got a fantastic new network of the non-national museums in the UK, which, of course, have their, that's where that's where all the action's happening. They're the people that understand their communities. They're not bound by the same sort of legal restrictions that we see for the nationals, but they're often almost always enormously under-resourced after 12 years of uh, uh, Tory austerity, the UK museums that have so many of the significant world culture collections are in real trouble. So we're trying to get that conversation moving forward. Uh, And then I'm doing some writing. I think the next piece of writing, which will be out next year, is on trying to, as I've mentioned already, trying to move the conversation of the decolonisation of sort of museums to learn from it and talk about the decolonization of sort of knowledge. So I'm giving the Strathern lecture at the University of Cambridge, and that hopefully will be the beginning of a um, of a new set of thinking, whereby we can show that museums are useful spaces to think about how to get on with the practicalities of anti-racism, but this has got to go way further across our universities.
Thank you so much to Sabadra and Dan for joining us. And you can check out all of the links and socials that we mentioned in this episode in the information box. Be sure to join us on our next episode, Scotland, Colonizer or Colonized. Eden Simpson and Ava Schalbrook with guests Nigel Leesk and Ewan Gibbs explore Scotland's link to empire, past and present, and how these colonial traces connect with the contemporary Scottish nationalist movement. Join us then. My name is Malini Yalanki. And mine is Rachel Gillette. We hope you take care and catch you again soon. Bye.